Good evening. Thank you for coming. Tonight's shear this week was dedicated by Shlomo Goldner, our dear, dear friend. This is in honor of his mother's upcoming yard site this Shabbos. Her name is Bluma Reza Bas Rabavram Shlomo. May her neshama have a very great aliyah to the greatest of heights. May she channel so many blessings and only good to you, to your family, for all that you need and all that you want, revealed blessings, delightful blessings, um, with much bracha mazel and everything. Thank you. Okay, we are ready to begin. I want to announce next week, Monday, is going to be the great yontiv of the 19th of Kislev, the day of uh, the liberation of Reb Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad Hasidism, and someone who has illuminated and brought so much light to the world and the teachings of Hasidus that paved the way to Mashiach. And that's considered a big yomtiv. So over here, there'll be a big event, a women's event this time. Um, and my sister is coming in from New York, Mrs. Gitti Rappaport, and she's really, really awesome. So it'll be a musical event. If I bring in, it'll be fantastic. Starting next week, Monday, I think at 7.30, or maybe 7. I don't know. Look at the flyer. Uh, this coming Monday night, an evening for women. All women should be here. That's everybody. Okay, thank you. Now we're ready to go. Um, it's a very exciting time. It's a very exciting parsha. Um, one of my favorite parshas. And someone and someone uh, brought to my attention that I'm so much. I'm speaking so much about number eight this year because we hit 5780 this year in the Hebrew calendar. It's 578. And eight, that's already transcendental energy. That's Mashiach. Number eight is Mashiach. So we are going to see fantastic things happening this year, without a shadow of a doubt. The Mashiach process is in full swing, but it's going to intensify without any doubt this year. And if we can only hope that it shouldn't only intensify, but we should have the full baby born already, the full coming of Mashiach completely. But it's even of greater significance when we're in the month of Kislev, which the month of Kislev has the holiday of Hanukkah, which Hanukkah is our eighth day holiday. It's our one holiday that has eight days. It's originally made for eight days. So we're like in the power of the eight. We're in the eight zone. And eight is a very significant number. So someone brought to my attention that Vayishlach is the eighth Torah portion. And precisely because of that, the main theme of this parsha is very messianic. Because the theme of the Torah portion this week is the conversion of the darkest forces of the world that not only do they stop interfering with holiness and the divine plan, not only are they subdued, but they're actually transformed to become an ally of holiness. That's the theme of Parshas Vayishlach. We have a very scary, scary, scary force, and that's Esav. And Esav is nothing less than a monster, a real brute. He's a very dangerous person. He's coming with 400 men. Yaakov is terrified. Imagine having God's explicit blessing and still being afraid. 
It's a question on Yaakov. How can he be afraid after God explicitly told him, I'll protect you? He's still afraid. But that just shows you what kind of threat this Esau was. And we go through history, we know that Esau was the worst oppressor of the Jewish people. We've gone through the worst suffering through the descendants of Esau, who've done, they were initially the Romans, and then later, this whole exile is the Roman exile. It's the exile of Edom which represents all the oppression the Jewish people went and had in the Western countries, all under Europe, under the Christian world. We suffered horribly. And yet, yet, the story, the real story of the Parsha, is that at that most pivotal moment, when, he, when Yaakov is afraid that Esau is literally going to bite his head off, he is so surprised that Esau embraces him, hugs him, and sincerely weeps. And I have a brotherly deep moment, a very intimate moment of deep brotherly love between Yaakov and Esau. And we know that that symbolizes the coming together of Yaakov and Esau in the Messianic era. And this is further expressed sometimes when you don't have clarity of what the Torah portion is talking about. You analyze the complete, the end of it, which is the Haftorah, the portion of the prophets. So in the portions of the prophet, there's a, this, in the Haftorah of Parshas Vayeshev, I'm sorry, Vayishlach, there is one chapter, it's from a Navi, in which this prophet only has one chapter, chapter Aleph in Sefer Ovadia. Ovadia, Ovadia was a convert Avadya was a convert from the lands of Edom. So he's in, he, he, he comes from the world of Edom. He prophesizes the demise of Edom. Again, Edom is the world of Esau. He prophesizes Esau's demise. But in the end he says, in the last verse, the famous verse, the Moshiach, the Jewish people, after they will be saved, which includes also Moshiach. I saw an interesting thing. One of the authors of the Tosvos, okay, so we're talking about a great rabbi from about a thousand years ago, Rabbeinu Afrayim, who says that the words Va'olu Moshiim Bahart Sion, that the Moshiim, those that are saved, or those that are coming to save, referring to Mashiach, will go up onto the Mount of Zion to judge Eshar Esau, the mountain of Esau. That's what he, the, the verse says, which is referring to the ultimate scorecard in which God is going to kind of, that's how everybody always understands it. It's then when finally Esau is going to be held accountable for the Holocaust, for the Crusades, for the Chemelinitsky massacres by the Cossacks, for the Inquisitions, for the Romans' brutality and all of that. They're finally going to have to answer for that. That's the simple meaning. That's immature. There's something much deeper. We're not seeking the revenge, whether there will be payback. Yes. But is that, is that what we're looking forward? No. The biggest revenge is when the enemy himself is transformed to become on our side. So that's the ultimate vengeance of the Jewish people, that we make the unholy world holy. That, that, that's, and lishpot means to direct. So anyways, Rabbeinu Afrayim from Tosfa says, 
the Rasha Tevis, meaning the first letters of the words, the Alu, it starts with a Vav, they will rise, they will ascend. Moshiim, those that are saving, as a Mem, Bahar, on the mountain, Tzion, of Tzion. So those four words, the first letters are Vav, Mem, Bez, Bahar, Tzion, Tzadik. If you make the Gematria, it comes out 138. The exact gematri he says of Menachem. That's Mashiach. Menachem, who is Mashiach Tzedkenu, he says two things, Menachem and Tzemach, which Tzemach is the same numeric value as Menachem. That's Mashiach. And he is the one who is going to complete the tikkun of Esau, the transformation of Esau. We always learned about this. We always heard about this. But it was a far dream. Who would ever thought that's possible? Today we are living prophecy, biblical prophecy being fulfilled in front of our eyes. If the unholy, by its very nature, is going to fight holiness by tooth and nail, so we know Jewish people and their observance were always blocked, we were always oppressed. And th this was the story throughout all of history. And those that were darker, the more unholy, the greater the opposition they gave to the Jewish people. Whether it was the Greeks, whether it was the Babylonians, whether it was the Egyptians, whether it was... We have a whole gamut of the nations of the world that have stood up against Israel and went gone, and, and opposed our Jewish observance, our spreading of light in the world. Interfered, let's say, at best. Okay? So we would expect that the return of the Jewish people to Eretz Yisrael, the taking possession of the land of the Jewish people of the land of Israel, the taking possession of the land, and more, the, 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 the eventually settling all of the land of Israel and building the third temple is not going to go down without a fight. Is going to evoke a big, a big challenge. Well, what has been at the center of the news in the last 70, 80 years? The problem with Israel and the Palestinians has always been in the center of the headlines. It never goes away. And it's always been. And the world opinion and world, talk about the UN for instance, Security Council of the UN, I think by not, I'm not exactly sure where they're holding today, but an amount of resolutions, I think there was, actually I think the number that I read yesterday was 138. 138, which I just said is the same gematria as Mashiach, Menachem. Not Mashiach, but Menachem. In any case, they had 100 and, this is what I read in, again, I looked this up on Wikipedia yesterday, so, but I don't know if they're up to date. 138 resolutions altogether of the UN Security Council in their all-time history. In their all time, looks like we're getting a nice uh, group of people, happy people. In their all time history, 138 um, resolutions, half of them, half of them are f over 45 are on Israel. You can't even see Israel on the map. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So you see the animosity, you see the bias, you see the hatred. As if, it's the, as if this is the place of the worst 
worst, worst human, human, uh, 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 human abuse. When, when you think about the abuse of, I mean, I'm saying even if you can find mistakes, so to speak, in the treating of the Palestinians, even if you will say that there are sometimes mistakes, no one is an angel and perfect all the time, that this should be half of the, of, of the biggest problems that face civilization, it's utterly ridiculous. It's clear that there is this inexplainable opposition towards the Jewish people taking, position, taking possession of the land of Eretz Yisrael, settling that land. People don't realize it's a spiritual thing, it's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing that people are kind of possessed by some dark force that knows that as soon as that small geographic location is fully under the control of the Jewish people, settled by the Jewish people, and that small little structure, which is not so big, is going to be built on that mountaintop, the full divine presence is going to fully manifest in the world, and Hashem's light is going to fill all the planet, and evil and negativity and the unholy will be eradicated forever and ever, and therefore the unholy puts up a fight. And it uses all the tools, even the tools of righteousness and so on and so forth, pretending that it's caring about this is the progressive way of thinking and so on, fighting for the Palestinians, became the most popular cause across the world. Now, in the midst of all of this animosity and hatred coming from all the European countries, coming obviously from the Arab countries, the European countries, coming from the UN, and coming from the, even the State Department in the United States, the media, the college campuses, from all the places in the world, mysteriously something that doesn't make any sense. I mean, obviously our survival is dependent only on Hashem. Our survival is not dependent on anybody. But in the natural world, as it's being played out in the world that we see, there is one supporter to Israel and Jews living in the land of Israel. And who are these one supporter? The one supporter is millions and millions of Christian evangelicals, which is the strangest thing. Talking about the biggest support in terms of money, in terms of political pressure. Now, our president has been doing stunning things. Stunning things for Israel. Stunning. Everybody's wondering, well, what is he getting from it? Now, whether he's getting from, well, again, I believe it's a messianic transformation having to do with the transformation of Esau, which is affecting him on, on his own. But, if there is anything we can point to that he might be getting from it, if you're saying that it's a self-motivated, which you would think probably, why would he be just caring? I mean, his daughter is Jewish and his Jewish grandchildren, but why would he care so much and put his neck out uh, for, for the Jewish people? Simply, it's because the Christian vote 
the evangelical vote. They're the ones who are pushing it. And they're the ones who have been defending Israel in the United States government and the Congress and the Senate, bill after bill, defending, like, like ferociously fighting. And who are they? They are the spiritual heirs of Esau. And they've been doing it for the last, I don't know how long, but 34, and lately, it's not just in America, it's in South America, and it's across the world. Now, Jews are always suspicious. Jews are very suspicious. So we immediately say, oh, come on. Got something up their sleeve. Got something up their sleeve. This is not pure motives. They have their, you know, eventually, you know, they have... Of course, I don't think it's 100% pure. It doesn't have to be. But let me explain you something. Maimonides says, Rambam says, that the very notion of Christianity to begin with, the reason was they believe in a Mashiach, was to pave the way for Mashiach to come to the world because the concept of tikkun olam, of a, wor- of a perfect world, entered into the human consciousness, became a global phenomenon because of the spread of Christianity. So if the Rambam says that about the old Christian world, which butchered and massacred on the, on the name and, tr- and, and, and have claimed all along that God made a new covenant with the new Jews and he dumped the old Jews. That was the old Christians. That's the European Christians. That's the old Christian world. If even they are part of the purification of humanity towards Mashiach, how much more so the new Christian, if you can say, who is... A million times closer, if you can say, to supporting Israel. Because there's a fundamental difference in the way the evangelicals look at, they believe in, 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 in whatever Yashka, as we say, Jay. They believe in him as the, as, the, as the Messiah, and they believe in that he will come back, and so on and so forth. But fundamentally, they believe that those who bless them will be blessed that the Jewish people are God's chosen people and God never took his love away from Israel, they think that Jews need to accept that Mashiach, so on and so forth. But that's only a tiny little, a tiny little correction that needs to be made. The way you change someone is little by little. You don't change a person immediately, you don't have snap your finger, then it's not a real change. A true change is like you have an argument with someone. And then they concede a little bit. Then a little while later, as you argue your point a little further, they'll concede a little more. And eventually, they'll say, oh, you're right. You understand what I'm saying? You don't change immediately. But this is crazy. Out of all forces in the world, the least expected would have been Edom. And yet, Edom, from all people, are the greatest supporters and assisting the Jewish people. I mean... The strength that Israel has now regarding Yerushalayim. The strength that the Jewish people have now regarding the Golan Heights. The strength that the Jewish people have now regarding settlements in Yehuda and Shamron, which is, and, which, and is amazingly powerful. The United States recognizes it. That's why Bernie Sanders and all these whatever people that are stuck in Golis and this deep, deep exile... Have, 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 have leaped up and, and cried out, no way, no way, the only solution is a two-state solution, this is, this, is, this is illegal, this is bad, bad, bad. And they see, they see with their own eyes 
to two-state solution, which was like kind of the way to resolve the whole thing, going up in thin air. It's literally laying in shambles now. Something that was considered sacred three years ago is gone. Because of that, I don't think that the impeachment will work and all of that, because this, you can see this is, this is God's plan. This is the Abishter running his thing and getting things done in a stunning way, which is messianic because it's both supernatural and natural as well. It's working through the natural political system, but at the same time, it's acting in the most weirdest way, unbelievable things around. No one would have believed that this was possible. This is this week's parsha. The Parsha, Transformation of Esau. And it's what we're witnessing, Moshiach, with our eyes. People don't realize how close we are. It's not we're close to Moshiach. We are already in the Moshiach experience. The thing that people are not noticing yet is Moshiach Tzitkenu himself, the one who is behind this light, that Menachem that we were talking about earlier, that's the power behind all of that. That has not been recognized yet in the world. It will be recognized very, very soon. So, but who's causing that? What does it have to do with me and you? This class is called Parsha in my life. It's not politics in my life. Parsha in my life. So what does it have to do with me and you? So the question is, are you responsible, am I responsible for this magical transformation? And in which way can we kind of add our own help and assistance in taking what is the most anti-Jewish and turning it over, not only that it doesn't disturb, and not only that, if we're not following it, we're not really getting it. Not only are they reluctantly smiling to Israel, they are fervently and passionately fighting for Israel more than the Jews are fighting for Israel. That's what's so crazy. They are going to drag the Jews to Eretz Yisrael. They're claiming that we're not taking it enough without, with, with the way we should. That we don't appreciate how much God loves us the way, the way He... They're the ones telling it to us. Don't listen, but if you do listen to some of their pastors speak, you'll hear it. It's unbelievable. It's like you wonder what in the world is going on? What are they saying? This is, this is, this is a miracle. But what, what's the source of it? Well, let's, let's explore something in the parsha that's amazing. In the end of the parsha, all the way in the end of the parsha, it speaks about the kings of Edom. The kings of Edom. And it gives you a whole list of, the verse begins, verse 31. Perek Lamed Vav, chapter 36, verse 31. It says, HaMalachim, and these are the kings, Ashamochu Be'eretz Edom. These are the kings who ruled in the land of Edom. Before there were any Jewish kings. In other words, before the first Jewish king was appointed, who's the first Jewish king? Shaul HaMelech, Saul. Okay, he's the first Jewish king. So before Jews appointed their first king, Edom, Jews are descendants of Yaakov, Edom appointed its kings. How many kings did Edom have? means the descendants of Esau, the verse says they had eight kings. Edom had eight, eight, eight kings, 
And then after the eight kings of Edom, then their kingdom stopped. They lost their power, their monarchy. They, had, they became more of a tribal people. They had leaders, they had chiefs, but no more kings. Why was their kingdom stopped? Because it was now turned for Yaakov to have a king. And if you remember, and if you remember what Rivka heard, Rebecca heard, Rivka heard, when she was told about what's going on in her womb. She felt that battle, that ferocious battle going on. And what did she, she didn't know what's happening. Her kids seemed to be confused. She went to ask Shame, the great Navi, the great prophet. And Shame gave, had a message from God. He said, you have two empires, two, 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 two kingdoms, and they're going to clash with each other. When one, Rashi explained, when one rises, the other will fall. They will, both, they will never have power at the same time. So that does the verses say, before Israel got power, Edom had power, eight kings. And Rashi goes ahead to say, well, the Jewish people also had eight. And Rashi goes to say the next eight generations. And after eight generations, later after we had eight kings, Edom rebelled against Israel and got its kind of its own and restated its, its, its emperor, its, its, its sovereignty, its ruler. So you see, it's a seesaw. One goes up, the other goes down. It will always be two powerful forces in the world. Yaakov and Esau. Fine. When it names the king of, kings of Edom, so parenthetically, I'll share with you something really cool. Did I say it a few weeks ago in the class? I don't think I said it. But I heard this from Rabbi Kesson. I thought it was really cool. He just mentioned that these eight kings exist on many levels. It also exists right before the coming of Mashiach. One of the manifestations of Edom is Russia. And which particular element of Russia? The Soviet Union. They were the Reds. Edom was red. And they were that powerful force fighting Jacob, fighting the Jewish people, and wanting to, and fighting God in the most intense way ever. So, but he pointed out an interesting thing. It's the eighth king, it says, that fixes it. He's like the last one, and he does a tikkun in the other seven. Because by the first seven, it says, they, they reigned, they died. They reigned, they died. They were king, and they died. It mentions death. By the eighth, it doesn't mention death. So he points out an interesting thing. If you go through Lenin, Stalin, I forgot all their names, Brezhnev, Kroshne, uh, uh, whatever. Basically, Gorbachev is number eight. And Gorbachev dissolved the whole communist regime. So it's an amazing thing how you see, and that's like, you know, paving the way. That's already bringing it like towards Mashiach. Mashiach's kingdom is really starting at that time. 1990 is when Mashiach's kingdom is beginning to take hold in the world in a real way. Edom is over in that sense. How does Edom apply to the United States of America? Yes, I see that happening now as well. Okay, but that's not leaving now. Now, let's read inside. It goes through all the names of these kings. And it mentions a king, his name is... He's the second king. Who's the second king? Second king, his name is Yovav. Yovav is the second king. He's Yovav ben Zerach. He's Yovav, the son of Zerach. And he comes from a city called Batra. Me Batra. That's his. Now, Batra is an area in Iraq. It's called Batra. When ISIS was in power, they were pretty much. And during the, if you remember, during the Gulf War, there was a lot happening in Batra. Okay. So Batra is a city 
This Yovav comes from Batra. Okay? He's one of the kings of Edom. So Rashi makes an interesting statement. Rashi says on the word Batra, Rashi says, Batra ma'are Moyav he. Batra is from the lands of Moab. And Rashi brings a verse where you see that Batra is a Moabite city. Al-Kiryos Val-Batra. But then you wonder if Batra is from, from Moab, what is it doing with Edo? Moab is a complete different nationality. Moab, remember who Moab is? Moab is the descendants of Lot. That's Moab. Edom is the descendants of Esau. Two, two different empires. Two different countries. Two, two locations. So we're talking about the kings of Edom. How is their king coming from Batra? So Rashi says, yeah. Rashi says, Trite, this king was not an Edomite. He's not an Edomite. He's, he's a Moabite. Moab supplied a king to Edom. Moab gave a king to Edom. And because Moab supplied a king to Edom, Rashi continues, Moab is also going to be beaten up, is going to be punished together with Edom. In other words, when the day of reckoning is going to come and Edom is going to be punished, included in that punishment is also going to be Batra. Why? Because Batra, the city of Moab, was supporting Edom by supplying them with the king. In other words, what we're basically looking at is that Edom is a very evil empire. If the Moabites are assisting them in their evil by giving them a king, they too are held accountable. And when God will punish Edom, Batra will also be included. Shanemar, because there's a verse that says, Kizevach Lashem Batra. A slaughter for God will be in Batra. Talking about the end of days, there'll be a slaughter of God in Batra. That's what Rashi says. Okay. So, what's the problem over here? The problem over here is, you know, we always, the deepest secrets, by the way, were always derived, as the Rebbe taught us this, by analyzing the simple meaning. And once you understand the simple meaning, then you can find treasures and treasures. First, you've got to unravel. On the simple level here, why does Rashi have to tell you any explanation on Batra? Again, Rashi's telling you who's this Batra. Batra is a city in the Moabite kingdom. And then Rashi tells you a whole story. Because they gave a king for Edom, when Edom is punished, Batra will also be punished. So the commentators want to know, like, why does Rashi have to give us any explanation on this Batra? Who cares? So Mephorshim say, commentators say, Divrei David, who is the, the Taz, he, his explanation is, he says, Rashi is bothered, how come it tells you where this king comes from? Who cares where he comes from? You want to tell me there was a king of Edom and tell me who he is. What's the difference where he comes from? The fact that the Torah gave you a name of the city of where this emperor comes from, that he comes from Batra. So Rashi wants to say, the Torah wants to teach you a lesson. What did the Torah want to teach you? That you should know that Batra is going to be punished because really Batra is not part of Edom. They're supplying a king for Edom so when God punishes Edom, he will also punish Batra. And that's what our Pasuk wants to tell you when it tells you that this guy comes from Batra. To tell you that Batra is going to be part of the punishment of Edom. That's his explanation. 
The Rebbe says, I have a problem with that explanation. For two reasons. Two reasons he doesn't like it. And you'll see, first of, all, this, first of all, this explanation of it is so crazy brilliant. It's so simple, yet it's so brilliant. It's, it just drives me crazy, the brilliance of it. So he says like this. He says, I have a problem with that, Pirush. That's my problem. He says two things. Problem number one is that what's it, why would Rasha be bothered by the fact that it's naming you a name? No, that's the first A problem. That's problem number two. We'll get that in a minute. Problem number one, which is the thing is, what's, what's his explanation? Why did the Torah tell you Batra? To tell you that Batra is going to be punished together with Adam. But why does the Torah have to tell us that now? Who cares that Batra is going to be punished with Adam? How does that have anything to do with this week's parsha? This week's parsha is telling you about Esau and his family. It's not talking at all about the... It's not talking about... Edom's demise. It's not telling you the history of Batra over here. I mean, you're bringing up Batra when it's unnecessary. Who's even talking about Batra? To tell you that Batra me. Even more than that, if this parsha would be talking about the end day punishment to Edom, like for instance, when Bilam, later in Parsha's Balak, when Bilam talks about end day prophecies, what's going to happen in the end time to all the different countries. And over there it would say Batra. And you want to tell me that Batra is going to get smacked together with, with Esau because they support. Then I understand you can, you can put it in. But over here it has nothing to do with Batra. It has nothing to do with the punishments of Edom even. So why throw in a word Batra, which is here to tell you that Batra is punished with Edom? The Rebbe says, I don't like it. I don't feel that that's why Rashi would, would be telling you this. There's another question he asks. The Torah, when the Torah mentions all the other kings, by each one of them, the Torah gives a sign other than his name. Gives you some other identification. For example, the first person, it says, his name is Bela Ben Baor, and it says the name of a city. The name of a city, Din Hava. The next guy, there's a fellow by the name of Chusham. And where is he from? Me'eretz Hatamani. He comes from Yemen. Then there's another guy, Hadad ben Bedad. And he gives you a whole, his name of a city also. It tells you another detail about him, that he was the one who fought a war, and he was victorious. And his city is Avis. Then there's another fellow, his name is Hadasamla. And where does he come? He comes from Masreka. So by all of them, it gives you names from where they come from. And Rashi doesn't give any commentary. So you see, the fact that the Torah gives you a sign when it wants to identify a person and tell you that he, to give you some identification element is not a question, why shouldn't the Torah do that? It wants you to know who the person is. If you're researching today ancient kingdoms, you see a name, you might want to you know, find the old archives, we'll find clay pottery, and we'll fly, find a place, a name, then we'll be able to identify, oh, the place is called Masreka, he's a king, he comes from, I mean, you can, what's wrong with the Torah telling you some more... Even more so, the last king, the last king that's mentioned, I told you the eighth king, the Torah doesn't only tell you his name of his city, it tells you the name of his wife. The name of his wife, queen, right? It's not telling you only his name, it's giving you Mahatavel, her name of her, Bas Matred, she's the daughter of Matred, Bas, it doesn't only give you his wife, his wife, it gives you his wife's father's name, and his wife's grandfather's name. So talk about detail, unnecessary detail. Right? The whole history. 
of, uh, of Melania over here. Who her father was, who her grandma. <laughs> Malagia! What's, what's the importance over here? So you see that what? The Torah wants you to know the, the situation, who's who. So that can't be the reason why Rashi needs to give you an explanation about Butzer. Okay. So therefore the Rebbe says, genius. He says Rashi was bothered by a major fundamental question. Of course, no other person in the world would think about this question, but the Rebbe. But he, he says, but Rashi was bothered by a really fundamental question when he got to these Pesukim. Going back, question based on, based on what? Based on that first prophecy that I mentioned earlier about Yaakov and Esav that was given to Rebekah, to Rivka, before, before they were born. What does the Torah say about? What does the Torah say about the two children? What does the Torah say? The Torah says, you have shnei goyim bebitneich, you have two, two nations in your, in your stomach or in your womb. Ushnei leumim and two empires, mimayayich, from your womb, yiparedu, we will separate. So in that Pasuk, Rashi says, on Shnei Goyim Bevitnech, Rashi says, Rashi gives you interpretation who they are. Let me just open it up. Oh. Again, this is a prophecy she gets from God. Hashem uh, Okay, Shnei Goyim. So Rashi says Goyim, it doesn't say Goyim. Goyim would mean nations. By the way, people think it's a slang, it's a, it's a, it's a, not, it's a derogatory term to say the Goyim. Okay. Goyim means nothing other than nations. It's just that when we refer to the, all the other nations, other, it really means Gentile, it means Jew and Gentile. But because we use it, it kind of begins to become like, oh yeah, okay, that's like a derogatory. It's not, it's, there's Jews and there's Gentiles. In Hebrew, Gentiles is Goyim. Goyim means nations. Okay. But Rashi says it doesn't say goyim, it says geim. The vav, is, it should be with a vav, it's spelled with a yud, two yuds. It means geim. Geim means two big shots. So Rashi says it's talking about two descendants, one from Yaakov and one from Esau. Who are they? Antoninus. Antoninus was one of the Roman emperors. And Rebbe, the author of the Mishnah, who was the leader, the Nasi of the Jewish people. These two were two powerful, very wealthy people leaders that happened to be very good friends. Okay? Antoninus and Rebbe. Okay? It was the one moment that Rome and, and it's like one of these moments when they kiss, Yaakov and Esau kiss. This was Antoninus and Rebbe. They got along with each other beautifully. But in any case, that's what Rashi says. That's what he means, two big shots, meaning two, two big leaders. Geim. Good. Then, on the next word, Shnei Le'umim, Rashi says, what does Le'umim mean? Le'umim means malchus. Ein lo'om ela malchus. It means king, kings. Kings. Two kingdoms. So if you learn this carefully, what we have to differentiate, or what we have to recognize, is that it's not saying the same thing. It's giving you two descriptions, two elements regarding the descendants of what's happening in Rivka's womb. Two things. Goyim is referring to, in this case, the individual descendants of Yaakov and Esav in their personal lives. We're not talking about their empire. We're talking about them as private citizens. How do you know that? Because the Shanei Le'umim, when it says two, two empires, it's not just poetry. 
It's not being poetic, poetic repeating the same thing, saying something else. Empires are empires, two kingdoms. So from, Yach, from Rivka's womb will come two kingdoms and also two, two, uh, two, two groups, a lineage that will come from two different children. So they exist both as individuals and they also exist as, they will also each one build an empire. Okay, so you have that. There is in the individual descendants of Yaakov and Esau, and there is the empires of Yaakov and Esau. Fine. What does it say further? It says, One towards the other will, Yemots means they will gather strength. So Rashi explains, what does it mean? One, one empire towards the other empire will gather strength. That means each one will continue, they'll be in competition. There will be a competitiveness between the two. Who will rule? So Rashi says what I told you earlier. They will never be in power at the same time. One rises, the other falls. The other rises, see so. One goes up, the other goes down. Bang and forth. This up and down, up and down. Fine. But what was the last words that the prophet said to her? Hear these words. I think it's so amazing because no one pays attention to this. It says, Verav The older one, the older one will serve the younger one. Varav, the older one, Rami is the big one, Yavid will serve the younger one. Who's the younger one? Yaakov is the younger one. He comes out second. Who's the older one? Esau. So the older one will serve the younger one. Rav, Yavid, Sawyer. So, over here in these words, when it says the old, when I, what does that mean, the older will serve the younger? Does that mean only at times? No. In the first person, in the first, it says one will gather strength over the other. Up. At times they'll be stronger, at times they'll be stronger. But then it says a flat statement. The older will serve the younger. Which seems to be all the time. Now, I always understood it. I, I'll tell you the truth. Before I learned what I learned today, I always understood it as, the end result after the battle, after the ups and downs, he'll go up, who will have ultimate victory? Who will triumph over the ultimate? At the end will be Yaakov. That's the way I always understood it. But the Rebbe learns, no, the older will, 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 will serve the younger is a blanket statement. All times the younger will serve. But how, how does that work with the first half of the Pasuk? The first half of the Pasuk, it says, when one will rise, the other will rise. They'll go up and down, up and down. So how can, it, how can you say that the older will always be subservient to the younger? So to take care of this problem, kind of to, to resolve this problem, the Midrash, to resolve this problem, the Midrash, for instance, says that you have to read the words Rav Yavod, the older will serve the younger, that the word serve is actually a loose word. It can be read the older Yavod or it can be read Yeavod. And let me explain what that means. Serve means the older will serve the younger. The younger will be more powerful, the older will serve him. That means Esau will serve Yaakov. The other meaning, if you change the word Yavod and you make Yeavod, means the older will be served by the younger. 
So that means in that statement depends how you read it. Either the older will serve the younger or he will be served by, be served by the younger. And that depends. Up and down, what's going to happen? That's what the Midrash says. Rashi, however, doesn't say that. Since Rashi does not say that, it implies that Rashi understands this to mean the older will always serve the younger. But hold it, we just said there will be a competition. So the answer is, this is great. The answer is, depends what we're talking about. We're talking about two separate things. When it comes to the empire, remember we said earlier, that in the, in the prediction regarding Yaakov and Esau, we have two predictions. We have the two empires coming from them, existing as an empire, the kingdom of Yaakov and the kingdom of Esau, but we also have the individuals of Yaakov and Esau as private citizens, as private individuals. So it would be as far, if that's the case, so the second half of the verse that mentions also two parts, they will be in competition and the younger will serve the older, is referring to, it's referencing the two things that mentioned in the beginning of the verse. When we're talking about the kingdom, the kingdoms of Yaakov and the kingdom of Esau will always combat each other. When one rises, the other will fall. That's the kingdom. And Yaakov will, Yaakov's kingdom will not always prevail over Esau's. Ups and downs. But when it comes to the actual children of Esau themselves, as individuals, they will always be the servant of their brother Yaakov. Now we'll soon see how that's possible. How is it possible that their kingdom, their kingdom is overpowering the Jewish kingdom, but yet the individual citizen, especially the leaders, are still subservient to their brother Yaakov. It doesn't make any sense. So again, we have to differentiate. In terms of the empires, the empire of Esau will sometimes be stronger than Yaakov. But the personal individual people as descendants, Yaakov will, Yaakov will always be the master of Esau. Now, by the way, he says you see the same thing. This is in the prophecy before they're born. Now, fast forward 60 years, 60 years later, when Esau is going to receive the blessings from his father, Yaakov deceives him, and Yaakov grabs those blessings. So Yitzchak is blessing Yaakov, and what blessing does he give him? He say, one of the blessings are, You should be a master over your brother. Again, this is two weeks ago in the parsha. He says to him, you will be a master over your brother. And you know what? And we know that that's prophetic. If Yitzchak is saying it, it's true. That means Yitzchak is making Yaakov the master over Esau. And one can ask a simple question. Okay, I know Yitzchak doesn't know it's Yaakov. He thinks it's Esau. Fine, that's make a difference. But his words are being divinely orchestrated. That he is speaking to Esau, thinking he is what? I'm sorry, thinking to Yaakov, but he's giving it the blessing. And he's making him a master over his brother. But hold it, didn't Yitzchak know the prophecy? Or it doesn't make a difference if he knows it or he doesn't know it. Let's forget about it. He doesn't know the prophecy. Maybe Rifka never told him. Fine. He doesn't know the prophecy. But how would God allow him to say a blessing that contradicts an explicit prophecy that one will sometimes serve the other? It will be up and down. How is he giving him a blanket blessing? You will be gevir lachecha. You will be the master over your brother. 
And the answer is, it's not contradicting the prophecy. Because he's not talking about the empire now. He's not talking about the kingdom. He's talking to him individually. You, you as a person, Yaakov will always be a master over your brother. And that will never change. It will never change. Esau will always be subservient. When I say Esau, it means him and his children as individuals will always be subservient to Yaakov. And, and you can ask a question, hold it. Later, Esau comes and Esau complains and he cries and complains. He's pleading, he's begging. He says, Dad, he stole my blessings. Please, do you have a blessing for me? Do you have something left for me? And what does Yitzchak say to him? Yitzchak says, I can't help you. Sorry, I can't help you. I made him already your master. And even if I'll give you wealth, whatever you own belongs to him. Because whatever a servant owns goes to his master. I did it already. It's too late. It's done. So you see clearly that that means there's, there's no conditions here. It's not like at times. It's always. I can't give you anything. So you see, it's, it's, it's a clear thing. But then you ask a question. Esau still pleads. And you know what Yitzhak tells him? Yitzhak says, when Yaakov stops fulfilling his obligation as God's servant in the world, when Yaakov removes the yoke of the Torah, when Yaakov removes the yoke of the Torah, what does he say to him? ulo, you can remove the yoke of your brother's mastery. You can re- remove the yoke of servitude. You can unload. So it seems to be saying that Esav is given freedom. At certain times, he doesn't serve his brother. Listen to the words carefully. He doesn't say, when Yaakov falls in his religious observance, in his duties to God, when Yaakov falls, you will become master. He doesn't say that. He says, you will remove your yoke. In other words, you can then be a rebellious slave. But you're still a servant. You're a rebellious servant and you will get away with it. Yaakov will not have the control over you, even though he will always be your master. That's a whole new view in this whole story. Yaakov will forever be the master of Esau. And there's nothing. The only thing that's possible is you can remove a yoke. If you remove a yoke, it means I can't harness you. I can't get you to do, serve me because you're not listening. But you're still a servant, even though you're a rebellious servant. So that's really, really novel. I got so excited when I learned this. A whole different approach to the whole thing. If that's true, which is the truth. So now, based, if we're going, if that's the way Rashi understood it, and why did you see Rashi? If, since Rashi doesn't add any other commentary, and if you, you, read it, you read it clearly, you get to this conclusion. If we get to this conclusion, then we get to an amazing question when we get to our parsha. What's the problem? Problem is, now we, the Torah goes to tell you how it was fulfilled. One empire rises, the other falls. The one empire rises, the other falls. So what's the question? The que- how was it fulfilled? So the Torah says, how was it fulfilled? Take a look. Edom had eight kings before the Jewish people had kings. So that's a fulfillment of Esau strong. Then Esau has no kings. And Yaakov becomes powerful for eight generations. So you see the fulfillment, one rises, the other falls. Good. But what's the problem? The problem is, if that's the case, 
you fulfilled one half of the prophecy, they will always be in competition, but you didn't fulfill the other half of the prophecy, that Esau will be a servant to Yaakov. Where do you have, during the period where Esau has eight kings, and Yaakov doesn't have any kings, how is that in compliance with the prophecy of God that Esau will always be a servant? He seems to be exactly equal to Yaakov. Eight generations when Yaakov has a kingdom, and eight generations when Esau has a kingdom. That's the question that's bothering Rashi. What's the simple answer? It is for that reason that Rashi understood, this is awesome, that the Torah lists by each king of Esau, it lists from which city they came from. You know what that means? Ah, this is so good. You know what that means? That their kings were not Edomites. Their actual monarchs were not the children of Esau. They had a kingdom without a king. The king was always a foreigner. These eight cities that are mentioned, each one, he comes from here, he comes from there, are not Edomite cities. They're foreign cities. They're from all over the place. These are cities from outside of the land of Edom. So Edom was a country and an empire that always had a foreign person be their king. Why couldn't they rate their own king? Looks like their kings were so, their people were so corrupt or so not worthy to be a king that they could never produce a king. They had to always go get a leader from outside. But the deeper meaning why they couldn't have a king is because they are <laughs> the people as people were already given the status of a servant. If you're a servant, you can't be a king. They're servants of Yaakov, so they couldn't produce their own king. That's why the verse says all these cities. Now, I will tell you something parenthetically. Rashi, the Saf and Rashi doesn't say explicitly, but the Sephoranu says this. Sephoranu says that all these cities that are mentioned here are not cities in Edom. They're not Edomite cities. They're foreign cities. And so says the Midrash. Midrash Rabbah says that Esau is compared to a ship, just like a ship when it, create, when it has to get its, uh, these, these ma the mast, or the, it gets it from different places. So to Esau's kings were not from, not from Esau. They had to import a king. <laughs> and import a king. Okay, that's Rabbeinu Bechaya and Ramban, Nachmanides and Rabbeinu Bechaya, State, no, say that all these cities mentioned here are cities of Edom. So we have, this, we have an argument. But what we're going to say is that, again, again, Nachmanides says explicitly not that way. Nachmanides says that all these kings mentioned over here are kings from Edom. But let's put Nachmanides on the side. Medrash, Sephornu, and we will say that Rashi also understood that. That what? That all the kings that are mentioned over here amongst the kings of Edom, in order that it doesn't ruin the idea that Rav Yavit Sa'ir, that, that Esau has to always be a servant to Yaakov, we have to say that these cities are not cities as part of Edom. Ah, so now we'll understand why Rashi makes a comment on the word Batsra. Because here, this is the one person, this is the one king who's challenging Rashi's idea. What's the idea that we're saying? That all the kings are foreigners. 
So Rashi says, I don't understand. There is a specific verse in Yirmiyahu and Jeremiah. There is a specific verse in Tanakh where it says explicitly, Batra. And it, not, no, not one verse. There is many verses. Where? In Yeshaya and Isaiah, in Yirmiyahu, in Amos. It's a whole bunch of places where you find that the city of Batra is mentioned together with the cities of Edom. I'm not, I was planning to read all the verses to you, but I'm not going to do that now. There is a whole bunch of places where it states explicitly that Batra is mentioned among cities of Edom. So this kind of pulls the carpet out of Rashi's whole idea. Rashi is learning that Edom is not a, Edom can't have a king of their own. They have to always have a foreign king, a foreigner as a king. Why? Because they can't have because their 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 own people are always servants to Yaakov, and they can't be there for a king. A can't can't be a slave. So they're, they're, they, they can't have that. So they always have to import a king. But we have a problem with Batra because Batra is a city from, from Edom, as we see from Navi, many places, in three places at least, where Batra is considered amongst, it's listed amongst all the cities of Edom. So that bothered Rashi. So to answer that, Rashi says, nope, you're getting it wrong. Batra is not a city in Edom, like it seems to imply in many verses. Batra is a city of Moab. And Rashi brings an explicit verse where it says openly that Batra is in the Moabite area. So Batra is, therefore it's no question, Batra is from Moab. Ah, but then you can ask the question, hold it if that's the case. How come in, in all the other places it lists Batra together with Edom? How come elsewhere you have three places I mentioned, Isaiah, Yermiyahu, Yeshaya, Yermiyahu, and Amos, in all these places it mentions Batra together with Edom. So Rashi says that's because of another reason, not because Batra is part of Edom. That's because in all those places it's speaking about the punishment of Edom in the end of days. And when Edom is going to be punished in the end of days, Batra is going to be slapped along, it's going to get beaten along with them, be whipped along. Why? Because they provided a king to Edom. Because, oh, why the other one's not? I don't know why it's not mentioned. Because Rashi's not, maybe they also will. Maybe for whatever reason, those places will also be punished. But Rashi's not into that. He's not explaining you what's going to happen in the end of days. Rashi's just bothered by the question. He seemed to be, if you learn Navi, it's, you, it seems to be that Batra is part of Edom land. So Rashi says, no, Batra is really part of Moab. You're going to ask me in all the other places Batra is listed together with, together with all the, the other cities. Ah, that's for a whole other reason. It's because Batra is going to be punished together with Edom. Good. This is the explanation over here which I think is phenomenal. But what I really want to get to is if this idea, if, if we're accepting, once we've established, on the simple reading of the Torah, once we've established, this phenomenal idea that Yaakov, the descendants of Esau, in person, are always subjugated to Yaakov, if that's the case, here's the problem. It flies against the entire 
beginning of this week's parsha. When you read the parsha, what does the parsha say? Yaakov sends messengers to his brother Esau. And you almost get a heart attack from the way Yaakov is speaking over here. He humbles himself to Esau. It's like almost embarrassing. He says to his servants, Ko Tomar, this is what you should say, La'adoni Esau, to my master Esau. Ko Soimar, so said, Avdecha Yaakov, your servant Yaakov. Do you hear how he's talking? And when he sends later, when he sends a gift, he needs to bribe him. He keeps on telling them, this is what you'll tell, this is what you should say to my master, and I'm sending this to my master, your servant, that they should say it to Esau. Your servant is coming, your servant. How is Yaakov acting completely in, contr in contradiction to the idea that he is the master? He's completely refuting both the prophecy and the blessing he got from his father. How is Yaakov lowering himself so much that he is the king, his brother is the servant, he is the master, Esau is the servant, and yet he reverses the whole thing and calls himself servant. Now, to tell you the truth, the Medrash says that Yaakov was punished because of that. Especially later when the, when the moment of confrontation comes, Yaakov runs and he bows down. Once, twice, three, seven times. So he's not only calling himself servant, he prostrates himself. He bows down like a servant. How is that fitting with the notion that Yaakov is the master forever? It's not like up and down. It seems... Again, so the Medrash says that Yaakov was punished because of that. You know what the punishment is? Seven times he bowed, produced those seven kings to Esau, according to the Medrash. It's because he bowed, that's why Esau got... He lost his mastery because he showed, because that's how he behaved. He behaved that way, he got it. And, and that empowered Esau to have kings. That's according to the Midrash. But on the simple reason, how does it make sense based on whatever we've said till now that Yaakov, the whole Parsha's Vayishlach seems to contradict this notion that Yaakov is always the master. Now on the simple level of Pshad, it's not such a question because we see that Yaakov, the, the, you see that there's a, there's a bigger question. I mentioned at the beginning, it says Yaakov is afraid of Esau. How is Yaakov, and he's, he doesn't know what to do. He's, he's very, he's trembling. He prays, he's, and the question is, he has God's promise. Remember? He has God's promise, Hashem told, he didn't hear it from some rabbi. He heard God speaking to him directly, telling him, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to bring you back to your father's home. He didn't come back to his father's home yet. So he knows he is scot-free. No one is going to bother him. You got God, God himself, sending his personal security to watch you. Like we spoke last week. He has angels. Hashem said, I'm going to protect you. So why is he afraid? So it's explained the reason why he was afraid, even though he had a... Because he thought that because he sinned, tzaddikim always think that they sin. So Yaakov had this thought that because he sinned, he lost that protection. He's inadequate for... He's not worthy for God to give him that protection. So now, so now we'll make a kalvachomer. We'll say like this. If Yaakov is afraid that he's losing the explicit promise that God gave him directly that he will protect him because of his sin, then he's for sure worried that the prophecy that was said about him, which is less than a divine 
direct prayer. It wasn't said to him. It was said to his mother. It wasn't said, it didn't come directly from God. It came from a rabbi, from a prophet, but didn't come directly. It's not as forceful. So we can understand that Yaakov was doubting that maybe it's true that I have to be the master and Esau needs to be the servant, but maybe I lost it. Maybe I wasn't, I don't deserve that anymore. Okay. So it's not a question in simple pshat. What I am asking of you, what the Rebbe is asking is, in concept, how is it that Yaakov behaves this way towards Esau? Now we said earlier that according to the Midrash, ah, this is, this is Gavaldi. We said according to the Midrash that it's considered a fault that Yaakov made a mistake by bowing. It's a sin. And he was punished for it. Okay, he, he was sinned by doing this punished. But here is one of the beautiful ideas of Hasidus. A true tzaddik doesn't make mistakes. A real tzaddik, especially on the caliber of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, it says they are the, they are the Merkava. What does a Merkava mean? They are the chariot. A chariot means, as the, as the, as the, as the Altareb explains in Tanya, a chariot means that they are so nullified to God, they're so conscious of God, that their body becomes just like a robot to fulfill God's will. They've lost all... Robot seems a little negative. I'm just using the robot not for the idea that it's a dead thing. I'm using the idea of a robot in the idea that it's in, they're incapable of doing anything else. That's all I'm using the robot for. They have, so, they have merged so much, they have so identified themselves with their divine source that it has become their identity that they can't move any of their limbs other than God's will. If this is the case... They can't sin. And to prove it, to prove it that Yaakov bowing down was not a sin, to make that, to even prove that even further that Yaakov's bowing down was not a sin, the Midrash actually learns a halacha from Yaakov's bowing down. If it would be sinful, we wouldn't learn out a halacha from it. You don't analyze a, a sin and derive a halacha from a sin. You can derive a halacha from a punishment on a sin, but you can't derive a halacha from the sin itself. So what do we learn out? And when I say a halacha, we're deriving a, 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 a certain, that a person should copy Yaakov, emulate Yaakov. In what sense? The Medrash says that during the time of exile, when the, the wicked are strong, we learn out from him, machnifim l'rishayim. That a person should, machnif means we should... Um, not flatter, maybe flatter. That you should flatter the wicked when they're in power. And 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 when we're when, when we're in when we're in kind of in their at their mercy, we learn from Yaakov that you flatter the, the so therefore it's okay to flatter the, um, the so again if this was a sin then we wouldn't derive a halach. So we have to say that there was something deeper, and I'm just gonna do this very quickly, just one thought. And this is the main idea. And here's the thing. Yaakov did not bow down to Esau because of any sense of subservience. Yaakov was absolutely confident and knows the score and knows the reality. He's the master and he's the servant. Yaakov, however, has a responsibility to rectify his brother Esau. Yaakov has a responsibility to elevate him, to turn him into a mensch. Esau is, is not a mensch. Yaakov needs to refine him and to elevate him. 
There is two ways you can elevate somebody. There's two ways you can influence someone. One way you can influence someone is by you remaining in your place, above, wherever you are, and shining light, being such an inspiration, shining light, that others are like, oh wow, they're just caught up in there, and they, even if they had different opinions and different ideas, the truth that you're conveying is so true and indisputable that even someone whose life and, and whole world view was different will have to agree that you're right. That's called a transformation from above. You're fixing something, you're not lowering yourself down to the one that's being fixed, you're, you're impacting someone that's lower, but doing it from your turf, from your high, from your high place. There is another way of of influencing some, and that is to entering into the world and into the space of the one that you want to rectify and you want to, and you want to transform. Meaning, getting down and dirty, entering into the you know the arena and battling it out, having the having the debate, having the arguments, and then it's back and forth and back and forth. Then you're actually. You're really, you're really confronting the opposition, and because of the confrontation, you're in a, you're in a, you're in a wrestling match. You're being back and forth. You're arguing, whether it's intellectual argument, something like that. But in the end, you know, you, if you're victorious, you have, a, you have, you cause a transformation in that entity that was opposing you. Now, each one, and I'm going to explain that in a moment, why the two approaches, and to get a clearer, clearer understanding in, in the practical sense, what that is. But let's first, for a moment, the difference between the two ways of influencing, one by rem from, from a higher place. So, from the perspective of the influencer, it's far more preferable not to get your hands dirty. Because if you have to go down into the world of your opposition and wrestle, you, it's like the Tanya says, when you wrestle with someone that's dirty, you will automatically become dirty. You will, the dirt uh, will go upon you. You will get dirty because you're wrestling with someone dirty. Even if you're going to win, let's say you win the fight, you're still going to be dirty because you wrestled with the dirt. That's why, for instance, the, the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, when your Yetzirah is burning, don't get into an argument. Don't even wrestle. Don't try to unargue. Instead, run, grab something holy, start learning Torah, shine light, go to a wedding and dance like a Jew. I, I don't know, find something holy and godly to do. Connect yourself to something great. And that light is going to blow that evil inclination away from above. Understand what I'm saying? You're not arguing it. So it's always preferable to stay in your high turf and influence from the teacher's perspective, from the influencer's perspective, because like this you remain clean. You're not making yourself vulnerable. But from the student, from the influenced, if you're being influenced by a power that doesn't lower itself down to you, but it's shining light from above, it might, it might affect you, and it will affect, it will, it, it might, it might subdue your opposition and it might soften the opposition. It might even quell the opposition. 
but it won't completely transform the opposition to become an ally. It will, it will, it will, it will, it will, it will overpower, but it won't transform. True transformation can only come when you get dressed in the clothing of the one you want to influence. In other words, you enter into their world, and from their place, you work out the details, and you change them through an argument, and you bring them up through debating it and changing it. And that's a dangerous transformation, but you can only claim ultimate victory that way. In war, it's also that way. You know, they always had the debate. We know America doesn't like to put boots on the ground. You don't want to do that. You'd rather have aerial bombardment from the top. You know, they used to have these campaigns during the, during the Persian Gulf War. It was called shock and awe. Boom, boom. Show them incredible military might and boom, they'll be quiet. Yes, but you can't conquer a country that way. You can, you can silence, you can put it off. Question is, will Israel ever go into Gaza and clean the place up or just bomb them here and there? Ultimately, to really change a place, or to, you have to go put the group boots on the ground that's, that's, that, that's the only way you'll have a complete victory. In that case, it means also eradication and not transformation, but I'll give you a little example. I speak a lot about what's happening in the world today, and you know I'm a pretty, and again, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not, I'm not coming from a political perspective, I'm coming from the Moshiach perspective, from the, that I think is the Moshiach perspective at least, I'm not claiming that I'm a prophet here, but I think this is the one, it's clear to me from everything that I'm learning, and therefore I'm very pro our current president and what he's, and what he's doing, at least for the state of it. And I'm seeing it completely as a godly interference in the world, unbelievable, and, and I've been doing this for two years. Now this is California, okay? So when I'm speaking over here, I'm kind of like in my safe zone. Yesterday I went to speak in another area in, of California, Orange County, pretty Republican, but I was very worried. I was very worried. Because I know I'm coming to an audience. I'm seeing the audience. I don't know. There might be some like really intense liberals over there, California. Good Jews. And I'm just going to say, even hint the word T-R-U-M-P. Forget about it. I mean, the smoke will come out of their nose. And they're like, how dare oh, this is the most. I know. So. I had to do a very careful presentation. Very careful presentation. Presenting evidence and evidence and evidence and evidence, but not even not touching upon him and so forth. Bringing him in very delicately. But there was so much light in terms of all the spiritual, Kabbalistic ideas. But the time was over. This woman came over to me. She said, I am such a liberal, she says. But, this, but you, you should know you didn't offend me one bit. She said, I was able to hear it. I was able to differentiate the person from the godly scheme that's happening. But the interesting thing is, I will never, ever, ever debate it with anybody. I, I like to stand at my podium, present the, present the information, give all these concepts and all the ideas. I'll never debate. First of all, it's not my nature. to. Con I'm, not, I'm not a confrontational person. Or when I talk about Mashiach, I'm very strong beliefs about Mashiach and about and it, that we're in Mashiach's days, and even about who Mashiach is. These are things that I've discussed, maybe not so popular or so, things in the world, and I never debated with anybody. Why? I'm scared to debate. I don't like debates. I don't like arguments. But more so, when you debate and someone asks you questions, in a sense, even if you have the answers, 
it like weakens you for a while. You know, you get that, eh, maybe they're right, this and that. So you have to like, eh, I don't want to go there. It's like a certain truth that I, I know it's, even if I'll come out in the end transforming and having an impact and they'll believe what I'm believing and so on and so forth, but I know it's going to darken it in my own eyes until I'll be able to heal from that. I don't want to do that. I'd much rather stay in the high ground, speak from above, meaning give all the spiritual, all the ideas, and then, okay, you know what? The light itself will dispel spell the questions. I'm giving you an example. The same can be an argument between a religious person, an observant, and a non. You can argue Judaism, you can argue. You can just give incredible ideas from above, or you can go head-to-head combat and argue it out. The ultimate victory can only come when you're willing to get yourself dirty, when you're willing to take some punches, when you're willing to get hurt, when you're willing to, to get... So the Rebbe says, that's the idea of why Yaakov bowed seven times to Esau. Yaakov has the high ground. He knows he's the master, he's the servant. And he could have affected Esau from above, but it's not going to be a perfect transformation of Esau. In order for Esau to have a complete transformation, complete transformation, Yaakov has to pretend first that he... No, first of all, he bows down. The bowing really means lowering himself. But there's another thing. He's in a sense allowing for the argument that Esau is not a servant to Yaakov. That Yaakov robbed him from... What was Esau's argument? I'm not a servant to you because you stole my blessings. I was supposed to be the master and you were supposed So Yaakov, like he's conceding to it. He's willing to go into the argument. He's bowing to him. He's basically putting himself down in Esau's place. But you know what happens right after Yaakov did that? Amazing thing. Esau admits to Yaakov and he says, Brother, you have what's yours. And Rashi says, you know what that means? Brother, you have what's yours. The blessings are really yours. So, what do I mean? Esau now is admitting to Yaakov owning the blessings. This is a total, this is against everything Esau has been arguing the last 35 years since the blessings happened. He's been arguing it's mine. Suddenly, after Yaakov bent down and kind of agreed with him, didn't agree, but like lowered himself down into his world and willing to allow himself to argue it out with Esau, Esau came around and was transformed and admitted that Yaakov is the master. Because the blessings, are, including the blessing, he told him the blessings are yours, including the blessing, you're the master and I'm the subject. This is a very deep idea. It's a very powerful idea. Now here's the thing. Does that mean that you won't get dirty doing that? Does that mean that it won't depend? Yeah. Yaakov sinned doing that. Meaning, sin over here doesn't mean a sin. Sin over here means that if you're going to be a broom, like the Balshemtov says, Balshemta says our job is we have to sweep out dirty places. Because you love another Jew, you have to be willing to go into the dirt. So you have to be. But the Balshemta says if you're going to sweep the dirt, you're going to get dirty. The broom gets dirty. The Balshemta says the broom gets dirty. So you'll have to go through cleaning. Sometimes to help other people, you have to go into their world. You'll get dirty. You want to be a tzaddik? You want to stay in your own little compound and remain holy like I like doing? That doesn't work always. <laughs> You need to descend into the grubkite, into the coarseness, to fix it. And if it means getting dirty, and if it means needing a scrub on that dirt, you have to be willing to do that too, because your ultimate purpose is to transform that which is dark and that which is low. That which is low. Which is a very deep lesson. And I'm going to conclude with this. This, this is the conclusion of it. 
The reason why Esav is now being transformed the way they were being transformed is because the Jewish people were willing to actually not only fix Esav from a distance, but fix Esav by descending into Esav's kishkes, descending into the, into the insides of Esav and transforming it. Where do we see that? I'm just going to conclude. Where do we see that? We were willing to take that extra step of going into Esav's territory and, and changing him. So the Rebbe, the Lubavitch Rebbe, is basing part of this idea on a discourse that his father-in-law, the previous Chabad Rebbe, the sixth Rebbe, said by the Rebbe's wedding, not by the Rebbe's wedding, by the Rebbe's Sheva Brachas. The Lubavitch Rebbe, his anniversary is this week, the 14th of Kislev. Shabbos Sheva Brachas was Pashas Vayishlach, I think. On that Shabbos, the, the Rebbe, the, the, the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, said a mime of Rav Sholem Badayach. And in that mimer, he's kind of explaining this idea that the Jewish people are here to make peace in the world. Peace means to transform everything that's dark. The Jewish people are called Shulamit. Shulamis. Shula, why are we called Shulamis? One of our names is because we make peace in this world. And he brings a fascinating medrash. And I, I, this is like, if you really hear what I'm saying, this is, this, this, this is goosebump material. The Midrash says, the Midrash says, and the Pasuk, it says, Shuvu, Shu, Hashem says, Shulamis, come back to me. It means God is calling us back from exile. Why are we called Shulamis? Because we make peace in the world. So the Midrash says that when, oh, here it is. I want to read it from the Midrash. The Midrash says these words. Um, that throughout all the times when Esav was butchering the Jewish people, the darkest times of our suffering and persecution. The nations turn to the Jewish people when they're watching the Jews filing into the gas chambers. When they're coming through rampaging the villages and killing men, women, and children in the year 16, whatever, when the, when the, during the Hamelinetsky uprising. They, they themselves are baffled by the suffering that the Jewish people are willing to take and, and remain Jews. They're shocked by it. And they say to the Jewish people, the guy is standing there with a spear and he's ready to plunge it into this Jew's heart. Okay? And he says to him, How long are you, being your, are you allowing yourself to be killed for God's name? I mean, don't you see? You're already in exile for hundreds of years. God dumped you. Don't you see? He doesn't like you anymore. That's been the Christian motto all the years. Don't you see what has happened? You're cursed. You're no more a blessed people because well, look, look what we're doing to you. And he doesn't help you. Right? Come to us. We, if you convert, if you join us, forget it. We will make you into who knows what. So the Jews answer. So, Rashi says, so the Medrash says, the Jews answer, the non-Jews, and say, what can you offer us? Can you offer us what God offers us? And as we debate, we answer. We give an answer to the nations. And tell them that whatever goods you're going to give us doesn't compare to what Hashem has truly gives us. And therefore forget about it. It's not a deal. Jews refuted. This is the Medrash. The Rebbe asks on this a question. He says, listen here. Why do the Jews at this moment, when they're ready to, to die al-Kiddush Hashem, you're at the highest peak 
of connection to God. There's nothing higher than a Jew giving his life up, al Kiddush Hashem, willing to give the ultimate sacrifice. You're willing to die for the sanctification of God's name. You're in the holiest possible state imaginable. You're at a point where you're getting... Why in the world do you have to talk to this brute murderer who's killing you at this moment? Shema Yisrael, sing, forget it, don't even answer him. What do you have to do? The Medrash says the Jewish people answer the non-Jew. Why are you answering him? Talk, you're just prolonging your suffering. He'll kill you anyways. You're not, see, if you would plan, if you're asking him, you know, how much are you willing to give me? It's one thing. But the Jew is not doing that. He's not nothing and no money in the world. He's dying for God's sake. If that's the case, why are you arguing? Why are you answering? So he says something which is like baffling. He says, we're, you know, even when... Since we are meant, since as Jews we are meant to make a tikkun in the world, since as Jews we are meant to make a tikkun in the world and to fix the world, there is never a moment that we can rise to connection to God and forget about our mission, even at such a moment when you're ready to die for God's sake, you can't forget about rectifying the world. It's not about you having a moment of ecstasy. Well, I'm dying for you, God. Yeah, but that's not, that's not, but that's not why I said, I could have left you in heaven just for that. You have to fix Aesop. You have to fix the world. You know how to fix him? You'll give him an argument. And what's the argument? You're going to tell him that, do you know what God has promised us? You know who Hashem is? Do you know that? At that moment, Aesop, that very murderer, appreciates why he's killing you. In other words, he pre not why he's killing you. He appreciates your awesome devotion to God. And he says, wow, this Jewish God must really be awesome. He might be killing you at the same time, but you're changing him. You gave a winning argument. Esau himself, who's, who's murdering the Jew, has an answer now, which is explaining why the Jew is dying. So you fixed Esau in that last moments of your existence. You fixed him. That's like crazy. You're responsible to change his idea. Now he sees. The, the God of Israel is something worth dying for. He must be really real. He must, now it might not affect him tomorrow. It might only affect him in 10 generations from now. That his great, 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 great grandson, evangelical, will come back and say the Jewish people are awesome. Why? Because, because of something that happened to his great 10 generations earlier in, 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 in France, where, where the Jews, that's, these are descendants that are happening now that recognize the greatness of the Jewish people because of the lessons that the great-great-grandparents absorbed during all the, all the times of when, when, when the Jews answered. You need to answer. You need to, get, you need to change. It's our responsibility to change Esau. And I think the previous Rebbe said this discourse and this idea by the Rebbe's wedding. Because this idea of engaging the world, not, not influencing, you know, we can say, how do we make the world holy? We learn, we learn Torah, we do mitzvah, we stay in yeshiva. We learn Torah, we do mitzvah, we stay in yeshiva. We do our Jewish thing, we have our Jewish communities, and we shine a lot of light, and all the garbage goes away. Yes, you can do that. But you don't, you'll cause Asaf to be subdued, but you won't transform him. To the generation of the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe, who took his Hasidim and first of all scattered them across the entire world and told them to get their hands dirty with the world. 
a whole new level. It's outward. And people don't understand. Chabad, going out, this, that. Oh, you're not worried for your children. What's going to be with your holiness? You know what? You're going to get dirty. You know what? People have complaints. Labarches, they're not so from and everything. Not that. And you know what? Yeah. You get there. But this is the ultimate sacrifice because the ultimate transformation is going to require a transformation. And it's going to cause, if you stay holy and, and insular, you might have a certain purity that others won't, that, that, that you lose when you go out there. But that's the ultimate sacrifice. Shulamis, you made peace in the world. Peace in the world will only come through an, again, it's always a very dangerous thing. It doesn't mean you go, you go do anything. It just means the idea that you're, 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 you're interacting with the world much more on the world's terms. You're speaking the language of people. You're understanding where people are coming from. You're opening yourself up to, to, to a modern, secular way of thinking. Obviously, what do you think? It's not going to harm you. It is going to harm you. That's why you have to be connected to the tzaddik to keep you from falling. But you have to go there in order to fix it permanently and to transform it. That was the unique mission of the last generation that actually gets its hands dirtier than any generation before. But what is the consequence of that? The consequence of that is that not only is darkness subdued, but what was once dark is now converted, transformed, and becomes the ultimate assistance for Kedusha, for holiness, and for godliness. And this is what it is. This is the story. This is Mashiach. So may we merit to experience, to see the Geula Shalema, May it be now, now, and now.